Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Brian. I'm an alcoholic. And before I get wound up, I just want to tell you, New York sentence about me. I was sort of looking forward to meeting Mary Lou. I've been talking to her on the phone. And unfortunately, she's not here tonight. But if any of you see her, please buy her a cup of coffee, the best cup of coffee around, and put it on my tab. <laughs> my name is Brian. I'm an alcoholic, and I come from New York. on the Upper East Side, an area called Yorkville. I work ethnic background. And uh, I don't remember the first time I picked up a drink, but I do remember the first time I had a blackout. Somehow looking back over my life, I seem to be able to remember more things about growing up as a boy than I can most things as a man. I can remember certain things with pinpoint accuracy. And I remember this day, I was about 13 years old. A friend of mine, Johnny, and I, we had some money in our pockets from hustling papers in the saloons the night before. And we had enough money. I went up 97th Street between Lexington and Park Avenue. There was an old abandoned building there. And I went in the back and there was a whole camp of winos passed out there. And I remember there was this one guy who went over, I gave him a couple of kicks and I gave him the high sign. And he came out and I gave him enough money to make the run to go get his three bottles of Sneaky Pete. That was five star Muscatel. In those days, in those days I think it went for about 26, 27 cents a pint. And I remember this man as one of the most handsomest men I could ever remember. He stood about six foot two, he had jet black hair, big blue eyes. And the most he could have been was anywhere from about 25 to 32 years old. And here he was, an old, old, young, dirty man. He was a wino. I come from a work ethnic background, and the only requirement for becoming a man was a desire to work. As long as you had a desire to work, you could beat the white, beat the kids, beat the system, beat anything you want as long as you worked. And these winos didn't work, and they were outcasts to the ballpark in these vacant buildings. And I remember three years before, prior to that, at the end of the Second World War, Yorkville had one of the biggest block parties for the, for the returning sailors and soldiers and Marines and the wax and the waves and the bands. They had a big block party. And I remember Mayor LaGuardia and Vito Marcantonio and all the hoi polloi, all the big mucky mucks in New York were trying to get next to this guy to have their photograph taken because he was a war hero. Tokyo Rose had mentioned his name in the Pacific there a few times. He was causing such, so much havoc that they had special Japanese scouts out trying to kill this guy. And here he was, an old, old, young, dirty man doing the running, the bidding for two 13-year-olds. And he went and got the three pints, and he came back, and he got his pint, and he scurried back into the building. And Johnny and I went behind him to the vacant lots, and I cracked my pint, and Johnny cracked his. And we're drinking the wine, and we're laughing and giggling, we're body-punching each other. We knocked off the two pints, and I remember walking up the neighbor to dig out this wine hole, to make the run again, and I'm walking up and I'm bumping into people and I'm pushing people aside. It was my first experience with beer muscles. I was about this air high, and already I'm pushing the people aside. And he went, he made the run, he come back, and I remember it was about two o'clock on a Saturday afternoon when I cracked that second pint. I remember putting it to my mouth, and next thing I knew I come out of a blackout, my mother had my head over the kitchen tubs. I was throwing up all this wine in the tubs. My two brothers were leaning over, they were banging the hell out of me, screaming at me, where had I been all day? Because the neighbors coming in told my mother that her son Brian was drunk and he staggering all over the neighborhood. And my mother and the neighborhoods were out and they scouring the neighborhood and they didn't find me till about 11 o'clock at night. And I just couldn't tell them, I didn't know. It was 2 o'clock in the afternoon when I cracked that second pint and here it was 11 o'clock at night and I just couldn't tell them. Now this wasn't the first time I had been drunk. I had been drunk many a times as a child at these block parties and the keg parties, but this was the first time I had a blackout, and there was something exciting about it. There was something manly about this. I mean, one minute you're there, and the next minute, boom, you're in the fifth dimension, and you're fighting the gods, and like a Viking, and the next minute, you're back, and your head is bloody, but you're unbowed. There was just something great about it. And I remember a couple of days later, I'm walking out the block, and one of the big guys coming down. I know him. I used to shine his shoes. And I stopped him, and I started to explain what had happened. And I remember looking up at him, and he was looking down, and he had a big smile on his face, and he had his hands in his hips, and he's rocking back and forth with this smile, looking at me. 
And when I finished, he said to me, kid, were you drinking? I said, yeah, yeah, I was drinking. He said, were you drunk? I said, yeah, yeah, I was drunk. And he just leaned back with this big smile and he shrugged. He gave me this big shrug. He didn't say anything, just shrugged, tossed through my hair, walked around me, he kept going. It seemed like all my life I had been raised what I would call this alcoholic shrug. I'd seen it all the time. I'd go in a bar, there wouldn't be a soul in a bar. I'd say, where the hell is everybody? They say, ah, they're out looking for Joe's car. He doesn't know where we parked it last night. They'd be going up and down looking for the car. Somebody would say, was Joe drinking last night? And they'd say, yeah. Was Joe drunk last night? And they'd say, yeah. And they just shrugged. Didn't say anything, just shrugged. I'd walk in the body and say, Mary's on the phone. She's hysterical. She's crazy. She doesn't know where she left the kids. And somebody says, say, is Mary drink? And they say, yeah. Is Mary drunk? And they say, yeah. And they just shrugged. They never said anything. They just shrugged and went up on about their business. Now, when I was 14, I had to be 16 to get in the pool room. That's where all the action took place. So I broke into the church directory. I, I robbed a, a pad of baptismal papers along with the church seal. And I, made, I forged my papers, making myself 16, and I sold off the rest. And at 16, you had to be 18 to get your Siemens papers without your parents' consent. So using my phony papers, I got my Siemens papers, and at 17, I ran away and I went to sea. And no matter where I traveled in the world, the shrug followed me. <laughs> it was like some kind of international voodoo, like juju. I remember I was 17, I was in a, in a nightclub in Singapore, and I got into a fight, and I got pretty bad cut up and pretty bad beat up, and they came and they took me to the hospital where they stitched me up, and then they took me and they threw me in a hole, and they had me in a hole for three days. Now, in those days, Singapore was still a British crown colony, and when they pulled me out of the hole, I looked like one of these punk rockers or one of these wrestlers. Half of the head was shaved and stitched up, and the, up, the part of the head was looking like a mohawk, all discolored, my face and the stitches and the blood stuck to the t-shirt. And sitting up there was the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the magistrate. He had a big white curly wig on, a long black flowing robe. And representing me was the American consulate. And when they put me in the, in, in the docket, I was there sitting, standing like a mess. I remember the magistrate leaning down saying to the American consulate, he says, was that bloke drinking? And the American consulate leaned over and said to me, were you drinking? And I leaned over and I looked at the American concert, eyeball to eyeball, one American to another. And I said, was I drinking? I said, of course I was drinking. You don't think I look like this sober, do you? I said, what the hell kind of an American do you think I am anyway? I said, of course I was drinking. Hey, we're drinking. We're all drinking. We're all drunk. And he looked up and he said, yes, your magistrate, the bloke was drinking. And the judge leaned back and he went like this. The American counselor went like that. The captain stood up. He went like that. I looked around. I went like that. And, and ladies and gentlemen, that's the story of my life. That's my story in a nutshell. It was just one shrug after another. That's what alcohol did to me. That's where alcohol took me. It reduced me and my life to a human shrug. They said the ship sailed for Panama was grand aboard. The ship came back last night from Panama was grand aboard. Did Brian have to go to jail? Does Brian have any money left? Whatever happened to that nice girl Brian was going with? Where the hell is Brian? In 1969, in 1969, I was on a real bad heat. I was on a wicked drunk, a real wicked drunk. And I come out of a blackout and I, was, I had this here phone. And I'm, I'm listening to the phone, I'm weaving back and forth, and I'm listening to this voice on the phone. And the voice is saying, take it easy, Brian, take it easy. Give us your address and I'll send a couple of men over to talk to you. I didn't know who this guy was who wants to send a couple of men over to talk to me. So I kept throwing words out, hoping maybe he'd bite and I could fill in around the sentence to figure out who the hell this guy is. And he kept saying, take it easy, Brian. Give us your address and I'll send a couple I said, wait a minute. What do you mean send a couple of men over to talk to me? I said, who the hell are you? He says, I'm so-and-so from Intergroup. Now, if you've never heard the word integral before, you don't have to admit it sounds like some kind of communist word. I said, integral? What the hell are you talking about, integral? I said, who the hell are you? He says, I'm so-and-so from integral, Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, integral, Alcoholics Anonymous? I said, how the hell did you get my number? He said, you just called us up. I said, I called you up. What the hell did I call you up for? He said, take it easy, Brian, give it your address. I said, you hold it right there, mister. 
Don't you send an animal around here starting trouble. You want something, I'll give you a punch in the puss. That's what I'll give you. And I hung up the phone. I sat down and I put my head in my hair and the sweat started pouring off me. And I kept trying to figure out what in God's name did I do this time that intergroup would be looking for me. I mean, the only thing I knew about intergroup was from the old Second World War spy movies. You know, with Humphrey Bogart on it. And in those movies, when, when Intergroup was after you, it meant one thing. <laughs> so I put the light out, I sat there quiet, and then I got up and I peeked out the keyhole, maybe see somebody. I, I walked across the floor and I leaned up against the window, I pulled the shades aside, and I searched out the doorways across the street, thinking maybe I'd see an Intergroup guy looking up. I mean, what the hell did I know? In 1970, I'm on a real, a real bad drunk. This was a mean drunk, a mean drunk I was on. And I come off out of a block and I got this phone in. I'm talking to this guy on the phone again. Only this time he told me where the meeting was and I went to the meeting. And the only thing I heard at that meeting was stay out of one bar, one bar at a time. Now I'm sure the guy was saying stay away from one drink, one drink at a time. But the way in my roomy head I heard it was stay out of one bar, one bar at a time. And I walked out, and I walked from 72nd Street on, on 1st Avenue all the way up to 3rd Avenue. And I'm standing, and I start walking all the way from 73rd, 72nd on 3rd Avenue to 93rd Street and 3rd Avenue. And I'm walking straight ahead, and there's bars to the right and saloons to the left and beer gardens and cafes. But I was a man on a mission. And I kept walking straight, and I got to 93rd, so one of the places I drank in, I walked in, I ordered up my usual sobering up drink, which was this big club soda with it with a twist of lemon, and I'm standing there, and all of a sudden I felt my body shaking, and I went into a fit. And when I come out of the fit, I was in his ambulance with a friend of mine, Jackie, and his big attendant kneeling on top of me, and he was ramming something in my mouth. And I couldn't quite figure out what the hell was going on. And the sirens, I, I didn't know who this guy was, kneeling on me, and I grabbed him, I rolled him over, I got on top of myself, punching the shit out of him. He started screaming to stop the ambulance. The ambulance came to a speech and halt. The driver came running around, he opened the door, he looked in, I ran over, kicked him in the puss, I hit the ground, I took off like a shot, Jackie ran over, stomped him in the face, he jumped down, he took off after me, I'm running up this block, Jackie's chasing me, I run down this block, Jackie chasing me, I spot a bar, you're running in the bar, Jackie comes running in the bar, I'm huffing and puffing, I said, Jackie, what the hell was that about? What happened? What happened? He says, I don't know. He says, everything was all right, you went into some kind of fit. Now, the only thing I could attribute that fit to was this intergroup anonymous. You know? I mean, they told me to stay out of one bar, one bar at a time. I pass all these saloons. Nothing happens to me. I go in one stinking bar, and I woke up in an ambulance. I said, that's it for this intergroup anonymous stuff, Jackie. They had one crack at me. They goddamn near killed me. I said, that's it. I ordered a couple of rounds. I'm thinking about it, and I remember saying to Jackie with hushed wonderment, I said, you know, no wonder those people are anonymous. I mean, they could kill you in broad daylight and never leave a fingerprint. In 1969, I'm on a ship where about five days out of, uh, out of the Suez Canal, I'm on around the world and go through the Suez Canal and go up to Naples. And uh, I was on a drunk. I had booze stashed all over the ship. We robbed it out of the hole. We had booze everywhere. And I come off the watch. I'm sitting in the room and I'm, I'm drinking. And all of a sudden, the word come down, the batten down the hatches, dogs down the portholes, that a storm is coming up. And I'm sitting there, and the more I'm thinking about this storm, the more I'm drinking, the angry I'm getting. And somehow I got the idea that the storm was there coming after me. And the storm hitting the ship is rocking the rope. And I got peeved off. I said, that's it. I don't run from nobody. I'm not running from this. I got the bottle. I went out and deck, slammed the door. I'm laughing. I'm peeing against it. Throwing punches, laughing, singing. The storm is hitting. A wave picks me up, slams me up against the housing and breaks my shoulder. Well, they wanted to take me off in Naden, but I figured, oh, no, man, I'm not getting off in none of those Arab countries. I'm getting off anyway, man. I'm getting off in Naples. Might as well do it right. So I tucked it out. They took me off in Naples. They had me there three days. They put me in a body cast with a big bar underneath the shoulder and shot it with a big bar underneath it. The agent came, picked me up, and... We got in the train and we had to go all the way to, to get to Rome and then the car all the way to the airport. There was about an hour layover and I'm there and I said to the guy, I said, look, you don't have to hang around with me. You're married? He says, yeah. I said, you got kids? He said, yeah. I said, look, man, I don't need a babysitter. The plane is right there. I'll just get some postcards and write them out and let the boys know what the hell is going on. So he took off. 
I'm sitting at the bar and I'm having a little cappuccino. I tell the guy, hey, throw a little brandy in there. Throw a little brandy. I'm drinking. I'm on the plane, first class. I'm by myself, all propped up against it. All the martinis, everything I want. When that gangway came down to Kennedy Airport, I come down it like a drunken runaway construction boom. I'm banging in people. I'm on. I fell in the escalator. The bar jammed it. Sparks are coming out. People are falling all over the top of me. 1970, we're three days out of Seattle, bound for Japan. I'm on a drunk, got booze stashed all over the ship. And uh, I'm sitting in the, in the postal, and he said, backing down the hatches, a storm is coming. Now I'm really getting peeved off. I said, man, I'm sick and tired of this. Everywhere I go, this storm is coming after me. I'm going to straighten it out once and for all. I go out in the deck, I'm screaming, throwing body punches, laughing, peeing, jumping, skipping around. A wave picks me up, slams me up against the housing, and shot is the lower part of my back. So they got me belly down, they got me off in Yokohama, they had me in the hospital 16 days where they operated on me. The agent picked me up, now we have to go all the way from Yokohama to Tokyo to put me on the plane. We got there about two hour layover. I said to the guy, he said, you married? He says, yeah. I said, look, I don't need you. I'm a grown man. I don't need any babies. He said, okay, get back. You got a long trip back to Yokohama. I'll just get some postcards, let the boys know where I'm going. I'm sitting at the bar there, you know. And I, uh, and I'm looking at the bar and I say, yeah, heat up a little sake. Yeah, heat up some sake. I'm sucking on the sake. I'm drunk as hell on the plane. I passed out. When they came to, there was a whole big puddle of blood on the seat where the, where the drain had come out and I was hemorrhaging. And they had me in the back of the plane with my pants down. And they had to borrow one of those old fashioned Kotex pads and pack me with the Kotex. And when the plane got to Anchorage, Alaska, they had to get my luggage out to change my clothes. And I got back, I'm thinking, I'm home a couple of days in New York, and I'm thinking about it. And I said to myself, how the hell was this going to see? It seems like every time I go to see anymore, there's a whole school of angry Moby Dicks out there waiting for me. I didn't mind going to see, but I didn't want to die over it. So I went back working in the tunnels. I'm a retired compressed air worker, Sandhog. And for those of you who don't know what the New York Sandhog, where the miners? The compressed air workers were the ones that built the tunnels and the sewers and the caissons for the bridges. And I was, uh, I was on a drunk, a real mean drunk. In about 1971, I heard this big banging at the door. Open the door, Brian, I'll kick it in. Open up the door, I'll kick it in. And I got up and opened it. It was the shop steward. And he said, what? I said, Jesus, man, keep your voice down. What the hell are you trying to do? Let the neighbors know my business? He came in. He go, phew, this place stinks. What the hell are you doing? He put the light on. He looked around. Man, the place was a mess. He went over, opened the window, threw the windows open, threw the blind back. He said, what the hell are you doing, Brian? I said, what the, what's the big deal? I'm having a couple of drinks. He said, a couple of drinks? How long do you think you've been having a couple of drinks? There was something about his voice. I knew I was in trouble. I said, I don't know, about a week. He said, you've been on this drunk six weeks. He said, when the hell are you coming back to work? I was the dynamite on the job. He said, when the hell are you coming back to work? I said, what's today? He said, today's Wednesday. I said, okay. I said, I'll be back Monday. He said, Brian, please. I said, look, you can take hook on it. I'll be back Monday. Because I knew all I ever needed in my life, no matter where I was, ladies and gentlemen, to come off a drunk, all I needed was quiet, a floor, a toilet, and water. That's all. And you go through the whips and the jingles and the sweats and the runs and the horrors. And usually I could get all the badness. It took about three days to get the badness out. When I got all the badness out, I didn't feel too bad. So Monday morning I went back to work. Nine o'clock they called for the dynamite. I load the cage full of dynamite. We drop 850 feet down to the tunnel level. We start going in. Now once you enter the lock, the compression chamber, on the other side, before you go into the tunnel, all the electricity, electricity is shut off for fear of maybe an electric charge to set off and uh, set off the dynamite and the cats. So we approached the heading with, and, and you load it with air lights and headlights and flashlights and we're loading the heading and I went into a fit. And everybody's screaming, what's going on? I don't know, it's Brian, where is he? He's over there. No, no, he's over there. Watch it. You're standing on him. And I'm flopping all over, pulling the dynamite and pulling the cats and I'm flopping there. And they called out to get an ambulance and the ambulance, they heard that it was dynamite involved and there was a lot of dynamite being stole off the, uh, the the construction sites in those days, and by the time they got me up, they had me stretched in a, and stopped down in the stretcher. By the time I came out, they had the bomb squad, the FBI, and they had baseball bats and binoculars and the guns on me. And I stood up and I peed my pants. I'm shaking like hell, and they were all peed off. They wasted all this time on this jerk here, and they wouldn't let me go back in the tunnels, claiming I was an epileptic. Now there's a federal rule that if you're an epileptic, they won't let you run any type of machinery in the tunnel. It's for fear that you're going to a fit and maybe kill the tunnel. 
So I went to Lenox Hill Hospital for a whole series of epilepsy tests. And a couple of days later, I'm sitting outside the neurosurgeon's office, and he sticks his head out. He says, Mr. Myers says, yeah. He gives me the high sign. I get up and I walk in. And just before I walk in to his office, I stopped and I took a big, deep breath. And I walked in. He's shuffling around the charts and the photographs. He said, well, Mr. Mines, he says, everything here looks pretty negative. And I heard the word negative, and I let my breath out just a little bit. I said, what do you mean negative, doctor? He said, well, things here look pretty good, and I let my breath out just a little bit more. I said, do you mean to say, doctor, I'm not an epileptic? He said, nah, you're not an epileptic, you're an alcoholic. I said, yeah, 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 like you're trying to skirt the issue. I said, but I'm not an epileptic, right? He said, no, you're an alcoholic. I said, then I didn't have an epileptic fit in the tunnel. He said, no, you had an alcoholic seizure. I said, oh, thank God, thank God. And I, I mean, what the hell did I care about being an alcoholic? As far as I was concerned, any man worked as all was an alcoholic. So I made him put it in writing. And I took it back to the safety engineer and I threw it on the desk and I said, here, I'm an alky, not an empty. Here it is. Alcoholic. He said, oh, so you're an alcoholic, Brian. I said, yeah. He said, so am I. I said, no kidding. He said, you're going back to work? I said, sure. He said, you want a drink? I said, sure. He closed the door, pulled out the bottle, and started sucking on the bottle. They called for the dynamite, loaded the dynamite, were dropping down the, the tunnel level, and life was good. God, it felt like a million dollars. I had the job locked. They couldn't fire me. I'm only an alky. Big money, big, big, big wheeling and dealing. But a friend of mine, Joe, Joe and I were born and raised together, went to sea together, and here we are working in the tunnels together. He had been sober in AA, and he had been 12-stepping me over the years. He heard about the trouble I was in. So he came up to the apartment and he said, Brian, look, please, why don't you come to an AA meeting with me? And this time I agreed. And the only reason I agreed is because I couldn't seem to get a handle on these convulsions. I was convulsing in subway platforms in the middle of the street. Now here I am in trouble convulsing on the job. And I agreed to go. <coughs> And at the meeting, the man stood up there and he guaranteed that if you don't pick up the first drink, you can't get drunk. He guaranteed it's impossible, impossible to get drunk if you don't pick up the first drink. And as the meeting broke, I made a beeline for the stairs to get the hell out of there. Everybody stopped. They started to say to our father. And I was shocked. I spun around. I looked out, to, looked through the crowd, and there was Joe. He had his eyes closed, holding his two fingers, rocking back and forth in his heels. Saying the Our Father. And I looked at him and I said to myself, Ah, oh, Joe, what the hell did they do to you, Joe? <laughs> I mean, here is a man who was born and raised from York, and here he is now rocking to Jesus and song singing with the best of them. After what we went for coffee, we're sitting in the restaurant, and all the AA people come in and they're filling in the boots and the chairs. And I leaned over to him and I said, Look, Joe, this has nothing to do with them. This is just between you and I. How long are you in AA? He said, seven years. I said, Joe, now, just between you and I. Did you understand that guy back there, the guy who was standing up there by the microphone? Did you understand what he said when he said it's impossible to get drunk if he didn't pick up the first drink? Did you understand that, Joe? Joe says, yeah, sure, I understand it. I said, Joe, Joe, stop and think. Deep down in the caverns of your bowels, Joe, do you understand that it's impossible to get drunk if you don't pick up the first drink. Do you understand that, Joe? Joe says, yeah, I understand. What the hell are you trying to say? I said, Joe, what I'm trying to say, of course you can't get drunk if you don't pick up the first drink. This is my first meeting and I understand it. Joe, it's all smoke and mirrors, Joe. It's hokey pokey. Now you see it, now you don't. Now you drink and now you're sober. Can't you see, Joe? It's bullshit, man. You're throwing good money in the basket full of happy horseshit. He said, Brian, please, please, here's a meeting book. Why don't you try 90 days, 90 meetings? And I said to myself, man, don't this guy ever get tired. I pushed the meeting book and I said, look, Joe, maybe you don't mind sitting there in the front row, humped over, squinting up at the speaker, slurping your lips for sobriety like some kind of AA quasi-modo. I said, Joe, that isn't my idea would be in the management. What happened to you, Joe? He said, please, try, try to take the meeting book. Try another meeting. I said, Joe, mark my words, and this is the best I can do for you. This, this is it. 
I'm telling you right now, Joe, if you keep hanging around with those people over there, you're going to be here for another seven years. <laughs> Just then the bell from the church started ringing and I broke out laughing. I said, Joe, you better get back there. Somebody took your job. And I walked out. Now that was in the fall of 1971. And I went through all the holidays, all the holidays, never picked up a drink. I was back, back working, wheeling, dealing, the money with the women and the bars. I mean, never, you know, all throughout the holidays. Now, at the time, I lived in 86th Street. I was born and raised in Yorkville. And on 86th Street in St. Patrick's Day, that's where the parade comes down and breaks up. And it's like a reunion, a, a gigantic reunion. All people, all of us from all over, uh, you know, New York and that, they meet in 86th Street between 2nd and Park Avenue, both sides of the street. Now, I hadn't drank in about four months. And my nieces came in, I remember the three of us walking up. My niece, each one had an arm, and I'm walking up, and I had a camel hair coat and a big green tie, and I had a Russian Cossack hat with sprigs of shamrocks, and I'm marching up, and everybody's yelling at Brian, I'm yelling at the marches, and I got up to where I drank, and they're passing around the, the bottle. I hadn't drank now in about four months, and the bottle came to me, and I pulled the plug, and I took a swig, and this, this first drink caught me in the grip of the grape this time for two weeks. For two weeks, the fears this time were so great, I never left the apartment, I had the doors locked, the windows locked, the shades drawn, the phone off the hook. The only phone call I made was a liquor store across the way, and that was it. And for two weeks I was totally isolated, and only an alcoholic would understand I loved it. God, I loved it. I mean, there was no judgment on me. The only friends and enemies I was the furniture. I'd stand in the middle of the room with my head up, my shoulders thrown back, the wind gently tossing my hair. My eyes squinting with mirth, searching out the horizon. My nostrils flaring with excitement. My teeth bared with lust. My chest slowly heaving. My hands opening and closing with anticipation. I would stand there truly a man of destiny. A man amongst men. All things to women. Jack and Nasus would be on their knees with their arms around my knees saying, I love you, Brian. Please take the money. Please take the money. And I'd throw my head back and I'd roll laughing. Money? You can't buy a man like me with money. And I grab by the scuff of her neck and I crawl out the door. And I slam the door. Next minute to be banging at the door. I had opened it up and it'd be Sophia Lauren. I, I heard about you, Brian, just once. Please, just once. And I crawl and I slam the door and I go through the door. Why don't you goddamn women leave me alone? Can't you see I'm only human? Leave me alone for God's sake, you know? I'd be standing in the middle of the room huffing and puffing, huffing and puffing because I had just knocked out Muhammad Ali for the heavyweight championship of the world. And I would always knock him out March 16, so they would beg me to lead the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And lead it I would. And I'd see myself making that wide turn on 86th Street and 5th Avenue. And the mayor would be standing there, and, the, and Major Dome would have to stick in the air. Right when Brian, the champion of the world, was in place, the mayor would give him a high sign, he'd bring the stick down. And all of a sudden, the fiddles and the drums and the pipes and, and the screaming and yelling, the cops would be on the horses skittering all over the place. Or the cops on the ground would have their arms locked trying to hold back the surging crowd of women. And they'd all be yelling, there's Brian, there's the champ, my God, that's Brian. And every now and then I'd hear a cop say, what a man, what a man. Or I'd be standing in the middle of the room, I'd be holding a bottle up. And I'd be weaving back and forth with the bottle. And these big tears of love and gratitude would be pouring down my cheeks. And the hair would wild and matted from the drinking and the drunk and the sweat. And these big bubbly snots coming out of my nose. And his red grimacing mouth. And his t-shirt stained with everything I drank and heaved. And barely hanging off my hips would be these warm, wrinkled, faithful, body pair of shorts. And my toes caked with black, dry sweat. And I'd be weaving back and forth, and these tears would be coming down because it was the third year in a row that I had won the Academy Award. <laughs> well, anyway, April 1st, 1972, April Fool's Day, Intergroup finally came and got me. <laughs> <laughs> And they caught me off to a five-day detox, and I don't ever want to forget, they were taking me down to the drunk section, and the nurse had one arm, my brother-in-law had the other arm, and the hair was wild and matted from that two-week drunk and that two-week growth, and I had that vomity, dribbly t-shirt and his old pea-stained pair of pants with the fly-broken half open, half closed, so I never needed a belt. I just pulled them off, kicked them in the corner, you pick them up and put them on. Those warm, wrinkled, faithful, farty pair of shorts.
I mean, they went with me. If I staggered down the street and fell in the gutter, they fell in the gutter. If I got locked up for the weekend, they got locked up for the weekend. And mark my, mark my words, ladies and gentlemen, one day shorts like those will be holding them on meetings. Believe me. And God knows they deserve them. And as we got closer to, to the nurse's station, right opposite was the men's lounge. And through the corner of my eye, I saw this guy coming out. And he saw the three of us coming down. He stepped back in. I could hear him say, Hey, guys, come out and take a look at this guy. Real wolf man. Take a look at this guy. And they all come out and they start laughing. Oh, and they say, Don't touch him. No, you should get locked. Your, your fingers are right off. And they're all laughing. And I remember this one guy saying, Nah, he's not real. He's an April Fool's Day. They're just trying to scare us. Now, this is the first time in my life that a man or a woman ever did anything to me. I mean, the first time a man or woman ever laughed at me and I couldn't do anything about it. I remember I was standing there and I had my head down. And this soul-sickening voice, this voice that had tortured me ever since I was a child, was digging into me and never let up on me. Digging into me. Look at you. You're nothing but a goddamn disgrace. You've left an oil slick a mile wide no matter where you go. Once in your life, can't you be a man? Don't let them laugh at you. Get your face up. Try to be a man. Try to do something right for a change. And I kept trying to get my head up to look at these guys. But it seems like somebody had used a machete and cut up all my neck muscles and my back muscles. I just couldn't get my head up. And if there's one thing at that moment I wish I could have done, and that was to grab myself by the head of the hair, yank my face up, and spit right into it. That's how I felt about myself. It was the second day over my 38th birthday. I was physically, mentally, spiritually bankrupt. I was financially bankrupt. And I was sexually bankrupt. I see now in sobriety that I had been slipping in and out of impotency since I was about 28 years old. And it was, it was tough sexually faking it over the years. I was a sand hog and I was a merchant seaman and I was a bartender and I'd be working the bar and the guys would be sitting there talking about the girls and this guy here took the girl home last night. He made love two or three times. And the guy over there took the girl home and he made love two or three times. And this guy there, he took the girl home and he made love two or three times. Well, I see now in sobriety that if these guys were taking these girls home, making love two or three times a night, one thing is for sure, they didn't drink what I was drinking, that's for sure. You don't drink that crap and go home and make love two or three times. You go home and fall out of the bed two or three times. I know for a fact the closest that they're going to come to sex that night is when they pee-pee two or three times. Now, I don't want to belabor this thing, but the only reason I'm throwing it out there is because maybe, maybe there's some guy out there that kind of knows what I'm talking about. As for the women, they know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and they had me there five days, and they suggested 90 days, 90 meetings, get a sponsor, get a meeting book, sit up front, 90 days, 90 meetings, get a sponsor, sit up front, Joe was waiting for me, I'm sitting at the meeting, and I, right after the meeting, I buttonhole one of these old-timers. I get him aside and I say, look, just between you and me, nothing to do with the people over here. I said, where did you get this concept of 90 days, 90 meetings? Where did you get 90 days and 90 meetings? I mean, how come not 75 days and 75 meetings or 80 and 80? Where did you get 90 days, 90 meetings? And none of the old-timers knew. Not only didn't they know, but they couldn't care less. They say, look, Brian, that's not AA. What AA is about is we don't pick up the first drink one day at a time. That's what we're about. We don't pick up the first drink. But 90 days, 90 meetings, it's not bad suggestion to you. Maybe we get some of that anger out, some of that confusion. But that wasn't good enough. I had to find out where they got 90 days, 90 meetings. Because I wasn't about to make the same mistake twice. I remember when I was a kid in school, I was always being beaten and punished and kept there at the school over these mystical, esoteric numbers. I remember there was the Twelve Apostles and the Ten Commandments and the Twelve Lost Tribes of Israel and the Seven Deadly Sins and the Eight Wonders of the Ancient World and the Nine Planets and the Four Winds and the Seven Seas. And Moses was in the desert for 40 years and Columbus was on the Atlantic for 40 days, 40 nights. And now me, 90 days, 90 meetings. But it didn't take me long. It didn't take me long to figure it out. And I finally came to the conclusion that you have to be here 90 days, 90 meetings, just to understand what the hell they're talking about. Because there's a very sophisticated way of speaking in our fall. The topic would be, you see, 
When you made a decision not to make a decision, you made your decision. Said, oh my God, what a topic, what a topic. Or the topic would be, you see, at the very second of not taking the action, at that moment of not taking the action, you took your action. They go, oh my God, circus speaker, circus speaker. The one that got me was, you see, you can't keep it unless you give it away. In fact, you have to give it away to keep it. And the more you give, the more you get. And I'd lean home and say to Joe, Joe, what the hell are they giving away? They don't work. They're all unemployed on welfare. Joe, they're even on alimony. Can't you see? And he'd say, see what? I said, can't you see we're being bullshitted, man? Let's throw all money. And he'd say, my God, are you still in that kick? And he'd get his cigarettes and he'd get his coffee. And I'd see him go sit somewhere else. And I'd say to myself, Dad, run. Run, you stinking A.A.S. kisser. I mean, that's all they seem to do around here. Stay away from a drink, come to meetings and kiss ass. I said, let me tell you, Joe, it'd be a cold wind blown to hell the day they get a man like me to bend over and start kissing. <laughs> and it seems like the first 90 days, I kept running into the same trust of the speakers. And I had nicknames for the speakers. Easy doesn't Mike. First things first, Bob. A day at a time, Rudan, you know. I had all these nicknames. And they introduced the speaker. And his name is Charlie. And Charlie stood up there and he said, I picked up a drink. I fell down a flight of stairs and I surrendered. And they all started to applaud and hug him, kiss him, get his autograph, invite him to parties. I sat there stunned. He picked up a drink, fell down a flight of stairs and surrendered. Man, I fell off gangways, barstools, garbage. And never in a million years would I ever tell a shit story like that in public. I mean, he stood up there and told it right in front of the girls. I remember saying, this guy will never get a girlfriend with a starter like that. He'd be better off saying he fell up the stairs. I nicknamed him Staircase Charlie. About a week later, they introduced Charlie again. I said, oh, there's Staircase. And I got up front and I zeroed in on everything that this man had to say because it was important to me to find out what kind of a staircase it was that made him surrender. Now, maybe he's going to say he picked up a drink and he fell down a four-story spiral staircase. Well, all right, I'll go along with that one. Or maybe he's going to say he picked up a drink and he went five stories between the banisters. I said, well, I'll go along. But there was some way to win Charlie. He was dressed and the way he talked. In my heart, I knew this guy was strictly a two-step foyer job. Man, you know. And he went into his story and he said, I picked up a drink. I fell on the flight of stairs, and I surrendered. And they all started to applaud, hug and kiss and get violent to parties. I said to myself, why don't this guy tell a real story? He had been drinking. He was drunk. That's why he fell on the flight of stairs. You see, they kept telling me, Brian, keep bringing the body. Keep bringing the body. Sooner or later, the head will follow. Here it was a week later, I heard the same story, but this time I heard a little bit different. And a week later, he introduced Charlie again. Now, this is the third time within a month I'm listening to this guy. I knew his story by heart. I'm sitting there and he said, went into a story as he got close to picking up that first drink. I felt my stomach tighten up. I said, uh-oh, watch that drink, Charlie. Watch the drink. And he got closer. I said, Charlie, can't you see what you're doing there, Charlie? Watch that drink. And Charlie said, and I picked up a drink. And I said, oh, well, grease the banisters. There goes Charlie. Well, it's the first time in my life, ladies and gentlemen, I understood the first drink. I knew once he picked up that drink, no way in hell could he beat the staircase. I lay out from here to there. I don't know how I understood it was like I was some kind of fortune teller, you know? But I just knew like a future I could see. This guy was going down. It was the first time I understood the first drink. Ladies and gentlemen, I knew. I always knew since I was a boy watching my father drink and everybody else. I always knew it was the first drink. But I never understood I never understood it was the first drink. I knew since I was a boy I was an alcoholic, but I never understood what an alcoholic was. Knowing one thing and understanding is two different things. You may know one plus one equals two, but if you don't understand it, you'll never get to three. And the dawn broke through for the first time. And I kept coming to meetings and I stayed away from the closed meetings and the step meetings because of the concept of 
I walked away from the religion that I was born and raised in the 14th, and nobody, especially AA, was going to start ramming God down this man's throat. But I happened to be at a meeting where they went into the concept of God. And one said it was this, and another said it was that. And I remember this man raising his hand saying, the way he had heard God was G-O-D, good orderly direction. G-O-D, good orderly direction. Speaking only for myself, ladies and gentlemen, when I heard that good orderly direction, it seems like my chest split open and centuries of venom and stink and anger and confusion poured out. Here now was a God that I could understand, good orderly direction. As far as I was concerned, that's what God was supposed to have been all along, was good orderly direction. And I literally turned my will and my life over to care of good orderly direction as I understood it, which was you, AA. And the only thing you were asking of me was to try to stay away from a drink, try to do the best you can, try to get to a meeting. And everything, everything in my life became good orderly direction. I go to a job, I see guys fighting, getting fired. I walk down the street, I see a guy dragging a woman out of the cab by the head, dragging her back into the bar because he hasn't finished drinking yet. I see two guys fighting. I see a guy passed out. I see an old, young, dirty man panhandling, trying to get enough of a bottle. And I say to myself, there but for the grace of good orderly direction goes I. And it simply made sense to this man because I no longer did any of those things because I trusted in you. And the only thing you were asking me was try to stay away from the drink. Try to do as best you can, try to get to a meeting. And I was about a year sober, and I was still working on the dynamite up in Van Cortlandt Park, four to midnight. And I would get up about 11 o'clock in the morning, and I'd, I'd uh, have my breakfast. And right across from the restaurant was an outdoor, was uh, Bonnie Google's, which was uh, a nightclub, and I had a park bench out there. And usually I had to sit there with a coffee and a cigarette, and I'd get myself together, because it took me about two hours to get to work. And this particular day, I'm sitting there with a container of cigarette and a, a cigarette and a container of coffee. And I see this couple come up and it's a mother with a little kid. And the kid looked like a little Shirley Temple. Little curls and a little dimple. She had this big lollipop. And she spots me. And she comes running up and flying up and jumps on my, right on my lap. And I'm looking at this kid. And she's laughing and she's pushing a lollipop out. And I'm looking at the kid. And the mother comes up and she says, she wants you to lick her lollipop. So I took the lollipop, I put it in my mouth, and made a big fuss out of it. I gave the kid, the kid popped it in the mouth, jumped off my lap, and started skipping up the street. And the mother looked at me, she nodded, I nodded at the mother, and they started walking away, and as I watched them walking away, this tremendous feeling of love overcame me. This tremendous feeling, and nearly lifted me off the bench. And I had never experienced something like that before, and I didn't know what it was. And I kept saying to myself, this is good orderly direction. This is good orderly direction, because good, bad, and different, everything up until that point was good orderly direction. And I heard myself saying to myself, Ah, Brian, this is not good orderly direction. This is the God they were talking about. This is the God of the rules. This is the God of sobriety. And I knew it to be true. And I just couldn't believe it. All the ideas of God, I couldn't believe it. I'm sitting there with a cigarette in one hand, a cup of coffee and the other, this taste of lollipop and God. And it just overwhelmed me. And I kept saying, God, God bless you, God. Like I went over his head to his boss or something. I mean, what the hell do I know about God? I'm just waiting to go to work. And I was four years sober, ladies and gentlemen. I was four years sober <coughs> when, uh, do I have the right time here? I, uh, when uh, I got a, a phone call. I got a phone call from... Uh, Am I running late? What is that, 9.30? Huh? I don't know if this thing's working. And I got a phone call from San Francisco that they were taking a bicentennial ship out. And they were going to crew her up with an East Coast crew, what I care to go to see. Now, I hadn't sailed in four years since they flew me home from Tokyo. <clears throat> and I agreed, and they said, all right, go see the Coast Guard, get all your shots, get ready. We're going to fly a crew up to that Maine to take it out. And I didn't. About a week before, a week before we left, uh, a friend of mine, Roy, was on the drunk, and Ronnie, his sponsor, was, uh, went to pick him up. And when he got there, he had already dove out 27 stories. And he, uh, when he got there, the police were there, and the ambulance was there, and it was a mess. He, his wife was there, and he had five children. And Roy was a half Jewish uh, and a half Irish Catholic, and the mother flew in, they cremated him. And at the, at, at the, uh, the funeral or memorial, there was a lot of finger pointing recriminations on what to do with the ashes. And I turned around, I got the, uh, the mother and the wife and his sponsor, myself, we sat down, and I said, look, uh, why not give me the ashes and I'll uh, bury him at sea? Because he had went to sea with us as a kid, you know. 
And that was the only thing they agreed. And the, uh, they notified the captain he was going to have a burial at sea. So we're up in Bat Maine, we're taking around the shakedown cruise, we're heading for uh, Panama. I ran into the captain, he says, you're the guy with the friend with the ashes, right? I said, yeah. He said, when do you want to hold the service? I said, captain, that's up to you. He said, you got the death certificate, don't you? <clears throat> I said, no, I don't have a death certificate. I didn't know how I needed one. He said, this is an official burial at sea. I'll tell you what, when we get to Panama, you notify the wife to have her send all the necessary papers to San Francisco, and we'll bury him in the Pacific, which I agreed to do. And uh, she did, and we sailed from, uh, from San Francisco on the way to Japan, and I ran into the captain, he said, well, he said, when, when do you want to hold the service? I said, captain, it's entirely up to you. And he said, no, it's your friends, whatever you want, you know? I said, all right. Seeing that I have a decision, I'd like to bury him on the international date line. That's by you. He says, all right, when we come to the international date line, we'll have the service. Now, to my way of thinking, ladies and gentlemen, if there's any one person that should be buried on the international date line, as far as I'm concerned, it should be an alcoholic. We are the one true internationalist. We are in every nook and cranny throughout history. They have us in, in the Bible and parchment and the hydroglyphics. You know how, how old the alcoholic is? Where is oldest fermentation? That's how old we are. We go back, I mean, since the beginning of fermentation. There was the ice man, the Neanderthal man, and right with them was us, the drunken man. We're right there all along. And if there's one person that should be buried on the international dateline, it should be the alcoholic. And that day come, and ladies and gentlemen, God pulled out all the plugs. He had that sky splashed with colors I've never seen before. Because the water was like glass. And right after dinner, about 6.30 at night, you could feel the ship start to shake as it's slowing down for the service, and all the passengers piled out, and all the crew piled out. They had the plank with the ashes there, and they had the American flag over it. And before I left San Francisco, I had bought five long stem roses, one for each one of his kids, and a yellow rose for, the, uh, for his wife, and I had them stapled for that plastic card. And, uh, and uh, the captain had agreed to close the service with the Our Father. And then when he picked up the, uh, the flag, the ashes went and then the, uh, the, uh, the flowers went after it. And then all of a sudden you could feel three long blasts from the, from the ship's whistle saluting the departed brother, his ship picking up speed, and then all of a sudden the party started. All the booze that broke out and everybody started, the animation going on in deck. And I meandered back to the back of the ship, and way in the distance in the wake I could see the flowers flipping and flopping. And I looked at and I looked around at the whole scene, and here I am in the middle of the world, cold sober. Now, I don't know what went through Roy's head when he drove out that window, but here he was in the middle of the, uh, in the middle of the world being buried with AA dignity, with fellowship by you and me, he with dignity and grace. And I got the longitude and the latitude line, I had photographs taken, so when I got back I mailed them all to the wife, so any day she can go and just trace out the longitude and latitude and say, here's where my, uh, my husband was buried. And the kids in time can turn around and say, this where daddy was buried. And in time, they the grandchildren. Freely given, freely received. Not knowing anything about you and I, but done with dignity and grace. And I came back from that, and with the help of the people in the program, I left school at 15. With the help of the people in this program, I registered and took the exams for Fordham University. They accepted me. And going to school nights and working the tunnels days in 1982, I graduated from Florida with a degree in fine art, something I've been interested in all my life. In 1987, I left the tunnels with black lung, but still the closest I'd leave the tunnels. And ladies and gentlemen, I did a lot of wonderful things in my life. I, a lot of things I've been to the top. I don't know how many times I've been to the mountains. I don't know how many times I've raised my arms in triumph and bowed from the waist, accepted all the, the applause and the kudos that go with my accomplishment. And just as often I've been on my knees with my arms crazy, raised in agony, bent over from the waist physically, mentally, spiritually, financially, and sexually, thanks to And at all times, ladies and gentlemen, in good orderly direction, at all times in the path of God, at all times moving ahead. And I remember a man telling me, Brian, if you don't pick up the first thing, slowly but surely, the drama of your life will unfold. And a wonderful thing happened last Thursday. Last Thursday I got a phone call from GSO, an intergroup. Would I be part of a group trying to start on the, the Ground Zero in the World Trade Center? There was a lot of drinking, a lot of drunkenness going down there, a lot of slipping and sliding, and uh, they were trying to get AA in there. 
and three of us went out to, uh, nine of us went out to uh, Academy Plaza out in Brooklyn to the Red Cross. And we sat there from nine o'clock in the morning to four o'clock in the afternoon, and they were trying to figure out where to put it, because, you know, we're an entity of our own. And, and, and uh, the Red Cross was saying, do we come under mental? Because at these disasters, they have psychiatrists and social workers and, and, uh, and, you know, they handle the mental, and then they have rabbis and ministers, they handle spiritual. Finally, they agreed that we will go spiritual and mental, slash as mental. And uh, they didn't know whose insurance do we come up with. Are we the FEMA? Are we on the FEMA? Are we on the Red Cross? Who are we? Finally, they cleared three of us. Just to get us over there, to get a footing last Friday. And we got there about five o'clock in the evening, and uh, they had given us a pass just until midnight. And, we, and they gave us a room, and we set up, and they, we weren't allowed to touch anything, but we had a blackboard, and we put it up. And then Saturday, we weren't allowed to go back because we didn't have clearance. And then Sunday, we got the, uh, the okay that we're in there. And we got a cop. He was the first one to qualify. And he says, never before did I ever think, he said, that I'd be sitting at an AA meeting at Ground Zero qualifying. And I said, that's the name of the group, the Ground Zero group. And that is the name of the group, the Ground Zero group. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're only about two blocks away. You can smell it, you know what I mean? And they're coming in left and right. And all they want to do is sit down and talk just for a minute. I remember we, <clears throat> we are, we're having a meeting going to three people. As they come in, whoever it is, we get them to qualify. And I remember this guy came in and we, we got the slogans, easy does the first things first, the day to time, stuck up underneath the backboard because you can't put anything up. And this guy came in and he saw the slogan, but for the grace of God. And he just put his two hands on it and set up against it. It was like the leaning wall of Jerusalem or something. And he started praying. And then he just turned around and put his back to us. He waved and he walked out. And uh, we don't know how it's going. I mean, it's, we don't know who's in first and how do we get the second. But we're there 24 hours, seven days a week. We have it open up, you know. And I like the name Ground Zero because I believe all of us come in at Ground Zero one way or another. We all come in from the war of alcohol. You know, with debris spread all over the place in our personal lives, and our sex lives, and in our religion, in our culture, you know. We all come in shell-shocked one way or another. So, and your prayers just, you know, send us a little, uh, little help there, trying to get that thing going. And ladies and gentlemen, the greatest statement I could possibly make tonight, aside from the fact that I have not picked up a drink, is this. Thanks to you and this magnificent program, Slowly but surely, slowly but surely, I'm becoming the person I drank to be. Slowly but surely, I'm seeing and hearing and feeling and doing all the things that I drank to do. Slowly but surely, I'm becoming me. Ladies and gentlemen, on my right knee, bending before God, I thank God for each and every one of you. And on my other knee, kneeling before you, I thank each and every one of you for me. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for me.